you know, I've got to look up this book. If these people in this town in Footloose hate it, then there's a good chance I'm probably going to enjoy it. <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 172. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, if you devour podcasts like I know you devour books, you are going to love this. You can now listen to new episodes of What Should I Read Next ad-free with Stitcher Premium. And it's not just What Should I Read Next. There are tons of ad-free shows included with Stitcher Premium. Plus, there's original content and exclusive bonus episodes from some of your other favorite podcasts. Sign up now for a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcherpremium.com slash Wondery and using the promo code Wondery. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app for iOS or Android and start listening. That's stitcherpremium.com slash Wondery and promo code Wondery. Today, I'm getting to know Sean Larkin, a self-proclaimed slow reader and stay-at-home parent. Although because of his photography gig, our paths have crossed once before, and that was fun to hear more about today. If you don't relate to 100 book reading goals or refreshing your feed for the latest book news, Sean is the kindred reading spirit you've been waiting to hear from. Today, we're chatting about the book that made him nostalgic for a time period before he was born, calculating price per page at the library book sale, and the longstanding bookish obsession he's passing on to his wife and kids. Let's get to it. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, I believe what happened just now is I was finishing my coffee and you were finishing a book. Is that right? I was, actually. What did you just finish reading? Different Seasons by Stephen King. Oh, a book in progress. I had just started it when I filled out my form uh, about a week and a half ago. I'm not too fast of a reader. (laughs) (laughs) So I just finished that this morning. I was planning on having it done before now, but hey. You take what you can. (laughs) Yes, that is a good maxim for the reading life. You take what you can, and that's how the books get read. Are you tempted to shake up your favorites now that you finished it? I did enjoy it, but not one of the top three. Worth your time? Oh, for sure. Worth my time, yeah. It was it was very interesting. It's it's made up of four novellas. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the book or not, but I'd heard about it because it's contains Shawshank Redemption, which is one of my favorite films, and then also a story called The Body, which is the story that they made into the movie Stand By Me, which loved that movie as well. So I was intrigued to read it based on those two, and the other two were kind of a bonus, I suppose. Like many readers, most of what I know about Stephen King is filtered through the huge Stephen King fan in my life, and that's my brother. Okay. I have heard all that before, but I have been tiptoeing around his works myself, but I think we're going to get to that in a little while. We will indeed, yes. Now, our paths have crossed before, although we didn't actually get to meet. I didn't realize the story of how you came to be photographing the Bookmarks Book Festival in Winston-Salem until I got your submission form for the podcast, because you're one of our guests who did fill out our form at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash guest. And it was so fun to hear that behind the scenes of how that came to be. I have you to thank for that job, actually, because prior to your fall book tour, I had honestly never heard of the Bookmarks Festival, but I follow you on Instagram and I saw your Instagram story when you were announcing your tour dates. And you announced that you were coming to Winston-Salem. And I was like, hey, that's not too far. And I looked into the Bookmarks Festival. And, you know, it's 
this big festival, they do it every year. They have tons of authors. There's events, there's readings, there's book signings. There's all kinds of really cool stuff. And I saw this and I was like, wow, that's awesome. Maybe, you know, we should try and go to that. And then the freelance photographer kicked in and I said, hey, I wonder if they need a photographer. <laughs> so I contacted Bookmarks and they indeed did need another photographer to cover the event. And they gave me my assignment when I looked at it. And Bogle was not on my list. So <laughs> I was a little bummed about that. But I did. I sent them an email and I said, hey, I uh, just wanted to see if anyone was covering Anne's talk already. I'm a big fan of the podcast. You know, if no one's covering it already, I'd love to try and add that to my schedule. But if so, then that's totally cool. I understand. And they got back to me and they said, yeah, it's no problem. You know, they restructured my whole schedule so that I was able to photograph a long list of wonderful authors, including yourself. Your talk was wonderful. It, the crowd interaction was great. There were lots of great questions at the end. I got to get some great photographs. So I had a great time. Well, that was such a fun crowd and it was such a great event. It was actually my very first literary festival, although now I've been to several and I'm sure I'll go to more in the future, but they have such a wonderful reputation for doing an amazing job every year, just with the way they keep everything running so smoothly and just the caliber of both crowd and presenters they bring in. Was it your first time at a festival like that? It was, yes. What were your first impressions? I was very impressed by it. I didn't know what to expect. Honestly, I hadn't been to something like that, um, but the crowd for the whole day was pretty good. There were people walking around outside. There were events outside. There were events inside. There were readings, book signings. Um, it was really neat. I got to meet a couple of really talented authors, and I got paid to take photos of them. So it was, really, <laughs> it was a really great day. Checking all your boxes. Oh, absolutely. Any day I can mix photography and books, it's, it's a good day. What are you usually photographing? What's a more typical gig for you? I do a lot of portraits, lifestyle, some documentary and landscape. I think the National Geographics on the shelves, on my dad's bookshelves, really inspired me from a very young age. So I am a professional photographer, but that is definitely a kind of side job to my main job, which is that I am a full-time stay-at-home dad every day, all day with my children. <laughs> How old are your kids? I have an eight-year-old daughter and I have two sons that are four and two. Now, this is the part where people probably say, you have your hands full when you go out <laughs> during the day. What's that like? Because stereotypes abound. Oh, they do, certainly. I definitely can say that the you have your hands full is top on my list of remarks <laughs> I get from people. I'm sorry. I have four kids. And anytime I go in public, you know, if you had a nickel, I'm sure. My daughter thinks it's hilarious every time someone says that she looks up at me and kind of gives me a little smile because she knows that it's kind of a joke between us at home. Boy, you've got your hands full, don't you? <laughs> I take that comment better than I do the, oh, you're playing Mr. Mom today or oh, the wife left you with the kids today. Kind of like a, oh, hey, hang in there, buddy. You know, why is it so strange for a father to also be a parent? <laughs> But I think it's just hard for a lot of people to see a dad out with his children in the middle of a weekday. And what's going on there? Why is, why is he not at work? So some of that is just, you know, you take it and you let it roll off. That's really interesting. Is that the kind of reaction you expected? Yeah, definitely at first. And, you know, it's the kind of reaction I got from people close to me even because my wife and I had both worked until my daughter was close to a year old mm -hmm. and 
we needed to make a change and we've always wanted one of us to be able to stay home. And at the time, my wife was in her career. She still has a wonderful business. She owns a salon. She's been doing hair for about 12 years. She's wonderful at it. So we're very fortunate that one of us gets to do that. But even at the start of it, people that were close to me, like friends and family were like, really, is that what you're going to do? And I'm like, why not? I remember one time I was out at lunch with my children. We went out to lunch for a special treat for them. And we were sitting at the table. My kids were behaving themselves. They were sitting calmly and quietly. We were waiting for our food, just, you know, having conversation. And this gentleman leans over to me. He's like, hey, man, I know how you feel. And I'm just like, what do you mean? You know how I feel? Like prideful, happy? I What do you? <laughs> he was sympathizing with me, empathizing with me because He knew how tough it was to have the kids out. And, you know, it's certainly not easy. I don't think it's easy for anyone. I think maybe some people can come by it better than others. But being a parent is being a parent. What do you wish people knew about what it's really like to do what you do? Because obviously there's some misconceptions going on about what your attitude towards your role really is. I mean, the best thing to know is just that I'm at home with my kids because I love my kids. I'm not at home because I don't feel like going to work or because I'm, you know, lazy or anything like that. Um, It's just the way that it worked for our family at the time that a change needed to happen. And it's working for us and we're happy. I would be very interested in hearing what the household setups for our other listeners who have children. Reader Sean would really like to know if there are other stay-at-home dads who listen to the show. So please mm-hmm. drop us a line, tag us on Instagram at what should I read next or email Brenna at Brenna at modernmrsdarcy.com. We would love to hear. That'd be really interesting to find out. I agree. Sean, you told us you've had a lot of changes happen in your reading life recently as well. That's correct. Yeah. I've always loved reading. I think I've loved to say that I love reading more than I've actually done it um, in the past years. So my love for reading started when I was a kid and I would read, I read all the Dr. Seuss and all the picture books in our house. And I loved all of those. And, you know, through elementary school, I started reading chapter books. And I remember fifth grade was a real big reading year for me. My fifth grade English teacher was wonderful. And she introduced us to Roald Dahl. And I think we read every Roald Dahl book just about that year. You know, she really was one of the ones that started my love for reading as an older child. Then I got into end of elementary school, middle school, and a thing happened. And that thing was called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. (laughs) (laughs) I was basically the target demographic for Harry Potter when it first came out in the United States. in I think 98, I was about nine years old. I finished it and I turned back to the start of it and I read it again. And then a month later, our school assigned it as reading, so I read it again. <laughs> Harry Potter kind of took over my reading life um, for the next probably 10 to 15 years. <laughs> I imagine you were in good company. There's never a time where you're in a crowd where there isn't someone else who also loves Harry Potter that you can you know, sit and talk with. But from there, it was kind of, I would read Harry Potter, I'd read them as the new ones came out, and then I'd reread them, and then... Every once in a while, I'd read something else. You know, I'd have assigned reading from school. But I think once I got to high school, I never really enjoyed the assigned reading I got. And I don't know if that's because I was forced to read it or because I just genuinely didn't like it. But I don't honestly remember loving anything from high school. But Mm -hmm. I do remember reading Harry Potter over and over again. (laughs) Back in the fall when my book, I'd Rather Be Reading, came out, I read the chapter Confess Your Literary Sins on the podcast and listeners can go back and listen to that. But we invited people to share their quote-unquote literary sins. Mm -hmm. 
So just all kinds of strange and fun and funny readerly confessions is what we got. And I was shocked at the number of people who wrote in and said that they reread the Harry Potter series (laughs) every single year. And some had done it for 20 years and some had done it for four, (laughs) but there should be a fan club or a support group or some, I don't know which it should be, Sean, which should it be? Uh, maybe a little bit of both. I don't know. I, would, <laughs> I wouldn't call it a literary sin. I think that's that's a little harsh, but it's definitely something I'm guilty of. <laughs> you know, even into my adult life, I'd reread them. You know, I got my wife to finally read them um, after we had our oldest son. She read them all. And, you know, it made me sick how fast she read them. I think she read all of them in like a week or two. And it, I remember when I was 18, the final book came out that summer and I took me the entire summer to read it. <laughs> you know, different people read at different speeds and I am on the lower end of that spectrum. That is okay. Every year we go on vacation in March for a week with my wife's family. It's a great time. It's relaxing. We're up in the mountains. It's beautiful. And, you know, it's a great time to read. So I always bring a book and, you know, sometimes I finish them. Sometimes I don't. Like I said, I'm a slow reader. And my biggest literary sin is that when I start a book, if I read every day, I'm good to go. But if I read it and then I don't read it the next day, I'm done. I'm not going to pick it back up again. But last year I said, you know what? I'm going to read a book. I'm going to finish it. And I did. So I um, checked out Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut from the library. And it's kind of funny. I'm not totally embarrassed at how I heard about that book. I was not aware of Kurt Vonnegut. I had never heard the name. I had heard the title of the book, Slaughterhouse-Five, from the movie Footloose. Really? In the movie, Ren, you know, is in that new town, and he's totally different from the people in the town. They're definitely not vibing on each other. And he overhears a conversation. They're talking about the awful book that they're teaching in the high school, Slaughterhouse-Five. And Ren's like, oh, yeah, it's a classic. And they obviously disagree with him. So in my head, I was like, you know, I've got to look up this book. If these people in this town in Footloose hate it, then there's a good chance I'm probably going to enjoy it. <laughs> Finished it in a couple days. And all right, well, now I need to read something else. So I said I need to pick something up immediately and just keep this rhythm going and Every time I finish a book, I've got to start something within the next 24 hours so that I can just keep the snowball rolling. And since then, I have been successful with that. I set a goal after I read Slaughterhouse-Five to read 12 books that year, which I know to many listeners sounds like that's two weeks worth of reading. But it was a pretty hefty goal for me, considering you know I was probably reading two books and Harry Potter again every year before that. At the end of the year, I had read 26. So I think I did okay with my goal there. That's 1,000 plus percentage increase. (laughs) You know what I'm going to say next. Quality is more important than quantity, but you wanted to read more and you absolutely did it. Were you happy with what you read? I was very happy with what I read. You know, so I found your podcast, you know, last March. I thought, what else else can I do aside from just reading to keep my interest peaked? Because I didn't know what was popular, what was good. I just knew kind of what the classics were. I scrolled through and I was like, oh, this, the premise sounds really interesting. You know, there sounds like there's going to be a lot of book recommendations. And the first episode I stopped on was I saw the name Ryder Strong. And I was like, wait a second, that Ryder Strong? It's like, okay, if I'm going to listen to one of my childhood heroes talk about books, then I think, I think I'm good to go. That was a fun episode. Is it important that you choose your next read before you finish your current read? Or do you just know you have 24 hours? 
it's like a game show. Like you have 24 hours. No. <laughs> I'm picturing a countdown clock. I've got books in my head that I know, okay, I probably going to want to read that next. Sometimes I just got to kind of feel out what I'm feeling at the end of the book I read and see if it's going to work well next. For instance, the book I just finished reading this morning, as we talked about different seasons, I might want to go with something a little less Stephen Kingy for the next one. Uh-huh. Do you know what's on deck? Well, I have a plan to read one Agatha Christie book every month. I've got The Mysterious Affair at Styles checked out from the library. So that will be the one I start after we get off the phone here. In that case, it sounds like you're reading during the day when your kids are home. I'm reading whenever I get a chance. I also homeschool my kids. So the bulk of the morning is taken up with teaching. And then the later half of the day, the kids are playing and I get a chance here and there to Mm -hmm. read some. It makes me so happy to see all the studies that come out because they keep publishing studies about how having books in the home and seeing the adults in their lives read makes a big difference to kids becoming readers themselves. So you're doing it, Sean. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) You really should be reading Harry Potter right now. See? (laughs) Ironically, I am reading Harry Potter right now. We've been introducing them to my daughter. I read aloud in the evenings to the family. We're reading Order of the Phoenix. So We're getting to relive them all over again, but it's even better this time because I always love to talk to a reader who's never read Harry Potter before and see what they think. And now I'm getting to read it to my daughter and my sons who pay attention every once in a while. (laughs) They can catch it on the next go round. It's fine. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Well, Sean, I can't wait to hear about your books. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do it. Readers, if you wish you could get through more books in less time, I have an app for you. Blinkist takes the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements that you can then read or listen to in under 15 minutes. The Blinkist library is huge, from timeless classics like Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs to current bestsellers like Educated by Tara Westover. And they are constantly adding new titles so you're always getting the most powerful ideas in a made-for-mobile format. If, like Sean, you're juggling family responsibilities, work, and personal development, and wondering, how can I manage all these competing priorities? Let me suggest you start with Laura Vanderkam's I Know How She Does It, How Successful Women Make the Most of Their Time. Blinkist can help you make the most of your time. You'll learn more in 15 minutes with Blinkist than you can almost any other way. I can queue up a Blinkist title before cleaning up the kitchen and learn something new before the dishes are done. 5 million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time. Get started today. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash read next to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash read next to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash read next. All right. Sean, you know how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And we will talk about what you may enjoy reading next. Tell me about your first favorite. All right. My first favorite is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. What was that reading experience like? It was actually the second book I read in my new life of reading. I read it just after I read Slaughterhouse-Five. We go to a book fair in Virginia every year called Green Valley Book Fair, and they had it there. You know, this is a classic. I've got to read it. My friend Robert recommended to me back in high school, and I should have listened to him back then, but I didn't. <laughs> and So I picked it up, and I started reading it, and I just fell in love with the writing. I think that it's 
incredible how much it parallels. You know, it was written in the 50s and it's based in a dystopian future where books are illegal. It follows a fireman, Guy Montag, whose job is not to put out fires, but to locate and burn books. Because basically the government has put a ban on free thinking. So he's doing his job, but he's feeling really guilty about it. And the way it talks about the way the world is, you know, the living room, the parlor walls are all televisions. And his wife is just enthralled with the TV. She calls them the family and she just sits in there and it's kind of an interactive TV show that they're talking to her. And it just makes me think of like, this is social media, basically, you know, parents talk about children coming home from school because the kids are gone to school for 27 days out of the month, I believe. So they're home for three days a month and the parents are dreading them coming home. So they just sit them in front of their screens to pacify them. And it's just, it's like, wow, (laughs) Ray Bradbury got that part pretty close, unfortunately, to the way that the world has started to become. I took my kids to the car dealership. We were getting the oil change and all of us were sitting down reading a book. You know, everyone else in there is sitting there on their phone or on an iPad and they all just kind of like look at us like we're from a different world. That's funny. I read that as an adult, but I'm I'm certain I read it before iPhones were everywhere. And that's so interesting that even though the book is very old, people reading it today would read it in a different way. Yeah. Wow. Go Ray Bradbury. Yeah, really. <laughs> Dystopian is so hot these days, but that's not why you picked this up. It was what what did inspire you? Honestly, I'm not even sure I knew what the book was about when I picked it up. I was still not fully knowledgeable of what I wanted to read or uh-huh. what I would enjoy to read or what was even available to read. And I saw Fahrenheit 451 and Catch-22 right beside each other. And I was like, well, these are two classics that I've always planned on reading. So let's go with these. And I still haven't read Catch-22 yet, but it's... That was my next question. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it'll happen soon enough. Maybe I'll bring it on vacation this year. <laughs> I'm trying to think how long it is. Could you get through it in a week? If you don't, it's okay, though, because you know you're going to be reading every day. I know that I would probably not get through it in a week. (laughs) Finally, this year, I read Lord of the Rings. When my wife read Harry Potter years ago, we made a deal that if she read Harry Potter, I would read Lord of the Rings because that's always been one of her favorites. And I didn't do it until this year. Well, I'm glad you did now. I started Fellowship of the Ring in, I think, June, and I think I finished The Return of the King in October. So it took me a little while. I did read Dark Matter by Blake Crouch for like two days in between Uh two of them. I feel like this is the part where I have to say, you can't, lots of readers ask, well, what can I do to read faster? If you are an adult who regularly reads as opposed to a second grader who's still developing the skills, um, there's not a lot you can do. Like generally speaking, it's believed that your reading speed is more like your shoe size than your aerobic capacity. There's not a lot you can do to increase it. And it is totally fine. But we're going to help you choose books with care so that you actually spend your reading pages on ones that are going to be worth your while. I'm okay with not being a speed reader. I am a very visual reader, so I'm, I'm okay with that. Sean, tell me about another book you love. Uh, The next one is And Then There Were None by Uh Agatha Christie. So you're hitting some serious classics. Yeah, I suppose I am. Uh, With the first two anyway. Back in high school, I saw someone reading Murder on the Orient Express, and I think I asked them to tell me about it, and they did. And I was like, wow, that sounds really awesome. I think at the time, the only mysteries I'd ever read were maybe a couple of Hardy Boys. So I was intrigued by the mystery aspect of it. But someone on your podcast talk about it, and then there were none and somebody was talking about murder on the orient express and i was like all right i got i gotta read something so 
I went to check out Murder on the Orient Express, and somebody had already checked it out. And then there were none was there. I was like, all right, well, here we go. I'll read this one. And I loved it from the first page. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Clue, but yes, it reminded me so much of Clue. And reading it, I was like, okay, they had to have been inspired by this book when they made that movie. I know it's based on the board game, but I felt like at the end of every chapter, it was like, oh my gosh, I got to keep reading because something happened, like some twist was happening. And the great thing about it, and then there were none, was that there were so many characters, which I've seen, you know, is kind of difficult at the start of some Agatha Christie books because there are so many people to keep up with. But once you get a hold of them. It just really makes the story that much better. And then there were none, obviously, takes place on a house on this deserted island off the coast of England. And these group of people are invited there by someone for different reasons. And then eventually, one by one, they start dying for different reasons. And that all of the deaths seem to go with this poem that's up on the wall in every room of the house. And so they're just frantically trying to figure out who else is on, if there's someone else on the island or which one of them is murdering everyone. And at the end of every chapter, something happens and you're just like, no way. (laughs) So it was, it was definitely one that I couldn't put down. And as soon as I finished it, I told my wife, I was like, babe, you've got to read this book. And before I took it back to the library, she read it and she was like, okay, yeah, that was really great. Do you enjoy the puzzle aspect of a mystery like that? Yeah, I enjoyed putting it all together. And then the twist ending at the end was just not what I expected. It's hard to talk about Agatha Christie without giving anything away. It is. I was definitely surprised by the ending. And I loved how all the pieces lined up in the end. And with I've noticed with all of her books that I've read so far, she mentioned something. And I'm like, ah, oh, there's no reason to even worry about that. And then you get to the end, you're like, oh, my goodness, it all connects. Wow. Yeah, she's not one for loose ends. Not at all. What inspired your one Agatha Christie? Was it a month or a year? One a month. I think I saw on Instagram, somebody had set a goal that they were last year that they were reading one Agatha Christie book a month. And I was like, hey, that's not a bad idea. Because, you know, if I do it like that, I can read them all in, what, seven years or so. Seven years at one a month. I knew she was prolific, but when you put it like that, wow. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. She's only outsold by the Bible and Shakespeare. So That is incredible. Okay, so you hinted that we're diverging from very old books with your third favorite. Yes, we are. So my third favorite is one that I was very fortunate to come by because I was I was unsure of what book to add for my third one. I was going between The Martian by Andy Weir and Dark Matter by Blake Crouch, both of which I absolutely loved. But then I read 112263 by Stephen King, and I said, all right, well, that settles that problem. <laughs> this was the first Stephen King book that I ever read until today. I think I was always scared of Stephen King, not not in the you know creepy way, but no, I'm so relating with what you're saying. Yeah, I just you know when I think of Stephen King, I think of it and Pet Cemetery and The Shining, and none of those really appeal to me that much. I'm not really a horror fan in any way, but I read about eleven twenty two sixty three. I'm very interested in history. I love slight science fiction aspect added to it with the time travel. And I found it actually at my library. It was in the books for sale section, which is where I buy like 99.9% of my books. Like, all right, whatever. If I don't like it, it was a dollar. I mean, think how cheap your price per page is because that thing is humongous. Yeah, a dollar for 850 pages. You can't beat that. Uh, It follows an English teacher who's gifted the task of going back in time to prevent the Kennedy assassination. 
And it just follows his travel back to 1958, where the wormhole is what they call it. It's found in the back of a diner. And he has to stay there until, you know, November 22nd, 1963, until he can prevent Lee Harvey Oswald from killing John F. Kennedy. I loved it. I loved the historical aspect of it. But I think even more than that, I just loved the description of the time period. And I want to say nostalgic, but I don't think that's the right word, considering this time period happened way before I existed. (laughs) But I loved the picture he painted of the late 50s, early 60s. I loved the swing dancing, which was a big part of it. I loved the cars. I loved the clothing. I, I just really enjoyed reading about that time period. A lot of books, you really want the action. But I think one of my favorite my favorite parts of the book were when the main character was in Jody, Texas, being a teacher and, you know, dating a girl. And I just, I thought the whole book was just really, really wonderful. You're not scared of the long books. You know, I'm not going to say, oh, I won't read a 300-page book because that's too short. I'm not going to discriminate against a super long book, though. Okay. Sean, tell me about a book that was not for you. Well, I know a lot of people say they don't like to say hate. And I always said, listening to it, I'm like, oh, if I hate a book, I'm not or I'm not afraid to say it. But I don't necessarily hate this book. Um, the book was The Princess Bride by William Goldman, mm-hmm. which was, I think mostly it was just a letdown for me because I've always loved the movie. I thought the movie was hilarious. I've loved it since I was a kid. You know, William Goldman wrote the screenplay for the movie. So, you know, the book's going to be great. And the premise of the book was really interesting. He writes it as an author writing an abridged version of the book. He has these fun little inserts where he writes as himself. And he's like, okay, in this part, they're going to do this and this. But it's really boring, so I'm not going to – you don't have to read it. And then he goes back to the story. But even with that, I felt like the book was like 100 pages too long. (laughs) (laughs) I really disliked Wesley. I really disliked Buttercup in the book. I just felt like they were a terrible relationship. Fortunately, I still enjoyed Inigo and Fezzik's characters because in my head they were still Mandy Patinkin and Andre the Giant. Mm -hmm. So that was still fun. Mm -hmm. But the backstories on them just got too long. And I don't know, I just felt like the the sword fighting was supposed to be so intense, but he describes every motion and what style of fighting they're doing. And while I appreciate that, it was just like, dude, get on with it. This is just, uh, and I hate to say that because, you know, William Goldman was such a great writer and such a great screenwriter and he recently passed away and that's what prompted me to read the book. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately I was not crazy about it. When you said that you found this book to be underwhelming to you personally, I flash back to a conversation that I was present for just a month ago at brunch where my husband and a friend, they both love the movie and how it's just such a letdown if you see the movie first and then come to the book expecting something as good as or better. And opinions do differ on this. The book has a really interesting storytelling construct Mm -hmm. that my husband and our friend just didn't think worked. Yeah. Others disagree, but you know, I th- good to I know. I thought I would love it. I thought I would love it. I thought it was, oh, that's really neat. You know, it's, you know, the author being a person and interjecting and it give you more of a connection to it, but I think mm-hmm. it, it didn't for me. What are you reading right now, Sean? So I just finished Different Seasons by Stephen King, which I did enjoy. I enjoyed Shawshank Redemption and The Body, I think, better than the other two. Stephen King says it's not horror, but Apt Pupil was definitely horrifying from a psychological standpoint. So, Maybe not horror on Stephen King's, <laughs> Stephen King's mind, but still kind of horrifying. 
so I'm just finished that. I'm reading Order of the Phoenix, Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix out loud to my family in the evenings. And we actually just finished listening to Seabiscuit on audiobook. I try to get an audiobook if we're going on a trip for mm-hmm. two hours or so or more. Um, just so we have something to listen to as a family. And, you know, in the past, we've listened to about halfway through the series of Unfortunate Events books, and those are great, but I kind of wanted a break from them, looked for something nonfiction that might be friendly for the whole family, and it was wonderful. Oh, I really like Laura Hillenbrand. Absolutely. Sean, before we get into your book recommendations, I'd love to hear a little more about your writerly pursuits, because that might be a factor. <laughs> Yes. Well, I am trying my hand at it. I've been telling my daughter stories every evening based on the same characters about a little troll that lives in the woods. And it's basically based on her and her brothers and our family. I've been telling her those stories for five years now. Every evening I make up a different story and it's getting harder and harder. (laughs) I wish I'd written down the earlier ones because they were so good. And now I'm just like retelling what we did today, but as a little troll with animals in the forest. (laughs) I promised her that I would write that as a book and I began that over the summer. And I think if I could put down all of the ideas I have in my head on paper quickly, it would be wonderful because I get sidetracked and I need to just stick with one of the first idea, finish it, and then move on to something. But I am, I'm enjoying it and I'm having a good time. And ultimately, if my daughter's happy with it, then I'm happy. It sounds like a big project. I love the inspiration for it. Oh, thank you. Sean, is there anything you want to be different in your reading life right now? For the most part, I'm pretty happy. I would like to read more nonfiction because last year in my 26 books that I did read, none of which were nonfiction. And, you know, I've really enjoyed a few nonfiction books in the past. I really loved A Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson. Um, I have a couple more of his books that I'd like to read already on my shelf. Oh, good. Because he sounds like a good fit for you. Into the Wild, I read in high school and Uh I loved that. I think if I read it now, I might have a little bit different feelings on, you know, Chris McCandless's decisions that he made. (laughs) But as a teenager in high school, I thought he was so cool. I love anything travel related and I love anything outdoors, hiking, biking, any of that. I would like to read a little bit more nonfiction this year. So you said in a perfect world, one nonfiction recommendation and two fiction? That would be wonderful. All right. I'm going to start you off with a twofer. Okay. I'm thinking about... The books you loved, they were Fahrenheit 451, and then there were none, and 112263. So these books are strong on plot. Mm -hmm. They're all very atmospheric and dependent on their location. They have all stood the test of time. But you do read new books also. Sometimes. Okay, like Dark Matter. Although I guess it wasn't hot off the presses when you read it. I mean, I follow what's coming out, but I'm not racing to get it. That's helpful. So the first one is going to be a twofer for nonfiction. It's not outdoorsy. Okay. We're going into your burgeoning interest in both writing and Stephen King's non-horror works. Okay. And the reason we're making this a twofer, each could totally stand on their own, but I want to give you those fiction recommendations. So the first is Stephen King's memoir on writing. He calls it a memoir of the craft. It's his personal story of how he became a writer starting as a child. And it's a little bit autobiography, a little bit personal narrative, and a healthy dose of advice for the writing life. Is this a book you're familiar with at all? I am familiar with it. I've even looked at it on the shelf at my library and I was planning to read it. So that's definitely a good recommendation. Oh, good. I'm with you. I'm not comfortable in the horror genre. I've read 112263. 
Mm-hmm. I intend to read The Stand, haven't gotten there yet, and I've read On Writing several times. I hear it's wonderful as an audiobook. Does he read the audiobook? Yes, he does read his own work, and I haven't listened yet, but I downloaded it at a fellow writer friend's urging if I want to read it again, okay, so I plan cool. to. But he's a masterful writer, so it's no surprise that he can write so well about his own life. But he also writes about things that I didn't expect him to. The way he explores that devastating car crash he had, mm-hmm. and I just could not turn the pages fast enough in that section. I just really needed to find out what happened next. But he also shares so many anecdotes about his personal life and especially his marriage that are really touching and funny and sweet. I didn't know enough about him to expect that. But the way he talks about his wife and her own career is really interesting and also just good human reading. It's a great book. The other one, I keep recommending it to my writer friends and I hear it's harder to find these days than it was when I first added it to my shelf, Mm -hmm. but it's worth tracking down a copy. And maybe your library has it. It's called Second Sight. It's by Cheryl Klein. The subtitle is an editor's talks on writing, revising, and publishing books for children and young adults. Now, many people I know who got into picture book writing learned everything they needed to learn about how it's done because it's a very specific and unique process from Mm -hmm. this book. These are talks, so they're very accessible and friendly They read quickly, relatively speaking. Something I really like about this specific book for you, Klein is an editor at Arthur Levine Books. That's an imprint of Scholastic. Mm -hmm. The reason I thought this book may be especially interesting to you is that she has served as the continuity editor for the U.S. editions of Harry Potter. It was her job to make Harry Potter come to life in the United States. Well, I can respect that. Yes. And there are (laughs) anecdotes throughout about what that experience is like. Since she's writing about her experience in part as an editor, she's writing about what she knows and her personal experiences on the job. And those have to do with Harry Potter. Definitely worth tracking down a copy. That sounds great. I think even if you are not a writer and you just like to know how the books you love to read end up on the shelves, that can be a really interesting work for those who want to write books who are actively writing them. There's so much practical advice and it's in such a concise, usable, and also just really fun to read format. Okay. Well, that sounds great. The next one I have in mind is a book that's similar to 112263 in that it is an alternate history kind of story. But like your other favorites, it has strong plot, strong sense of place. It's by Ben Winters and it's called Underground Airlines. Is this a book you know? I have never heard of this. It's come out in the last five years. It's not super new. He has a brand new release called Golden State that I'm seeing a lot of places, but I like Underground Airlines better for you. Publishers Weekly had a great description of this. They called it Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man meets Blade Runner. Okay, that sounds interesting. This is dystopian in the sense that Fahrenheit 451 is. In 112263, Jake goes back in time to try to stop the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. In Underground Airlines, Winters imagines an alternate history in which Lincoln was killed before the Civil War started in 1861. So the Civil War was never fought and slavery is still legal in the United States, not throughout, but in four Southern states known as the hard four. How's that for a premise? That sounds very interesting. So this book centers around a bounty hunter who works for the U.S. Marshals and his job is to track down runaway slaves who've escaped from the hard four where it is not illegal for slavery to exist even in what is contemporary America. You have this really interesting 
setting, you have a cat and mouse and you have unexpected relationships that develop on this hunt that end up being vastly important and really thought provoking to the reader. I mean, this is a thriller that's still addressing really big, important themes in a way that can just suck the reader right in. How does that sound to you? That sounds really good. I'm definitely intrigued by that. Okay, finally, I didn't mean to get all science fiction on you. No, it's okay. Science fiction is good. The fact that you really loved Dark Matter and the fact that you really loved The Martian Mm -hmm. has me wondering a book that we have not talked about on What Should I Read Next for two years, but I know I did recommend it to Mel Jewelwan in our first calendar year, but I think it's worth bringing back for you. And this is now a trilogy. There was just one book at the time. It's by Sylvain Nouvelle. He's a Canadian author. It's called Sleeping Giants. At the time, it was just a debut. Now it is the first book in the Themis Files series that he wrote. This again is a scientific thriller, really amazing premise. The plot revolves around <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous. The plot revolves around this giant metal hand that was found in the ground. In the beginning of the book, there's this young girl. She's playing near her home in the Black Hills of South Dakota, and she falls into a huge hole, and she lands literally in the palm of this giant metallic hand in the ground. And the government gets involved, and they can't figure out what's going on. They think, is this from a lost civilization? Is it an alien artifact? What's going on? They remove it. They put it into storage. It's fine. Nothing happens. Years later, this girl is all grown up and she's a physicist at a Midwestern university. And she totally wanted to enter the field because of this experience she has as a child that stuck with her. So that happens in the prologue. Then we flash forward at least 15 years. We need time for the young girl to like grow up and become Mm. a well-respected physicist and be really grounded in her profession. At that time, halfway around the world, there's a U.S. Army pilot flying over some field on the other side of the world and her plane crashes. It might be a helicopter. That's not the important part. (laughs) What comes out is that her plane was brought down by this metal field emanating from the ground. And it turned out to be another body part for Mm -hmm. what is a giant robot. This sounds so strange, right? This probably sounds a little wacky, but the scientists end up on this chase trying to think like, okay, if there's these two parts, there must be more buried throughout the world. And so they go on this hunt to find them and they pull in other characters who are needed to complete their mission. It's like a science fiction thriller. It's totally a page turner. I think it's going to keep your momentum up in your reading life. I think you may enjoy the really interesting concept. It's strong on plot. It's a very unique setting. And you also get a little bit of that Agatha Christie claustrophobic feeling because these characters are stuck together, literally in small confined spaces for large periods of time because of the mission that they are bound together on. There is no way out in the same sense. There was no way off that island. I don't feel like by any means we would call this a read-alike for, and then there were none. But I think the same qualities that made you like the one book are present in the other. Although- in a completely different genre and setting, which I think will keep your reading life uh, fun. Okay. Weird is not a bad thing. I enjoy Neil Gaiman, so there's not a whole lot weirder than him. (laughs) Coraline is my favorite, but I like the movie better than the book on that one. Is that okay? Uh, Yeah, that's okay. I still actually haven't even watched the movie. I read Coraline back in October, and I read Ocean at the End of the Lane earlier in the year, and I like them both a lot. Talk about weird and also atmospheric. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely strange, but strange is okay. In that case, I think you'll be okay with Sleeping Giants. Okay, good. So Sean, 
here are the books we talked about. We talked about your two nonfiction writing books that are still enjoyable for their own sake, even for Mm non-writers. Stephen King on writing and Second Sight, an editor's talks on writing, revising, and publishing books for children and young adults, which I had to go run grab off my shelf. So I'm holding it in my hand for that (laughs) subtitle. We talked about Underground Airlines by Ben Winters Mm -hmm. and Sleeping Giants by Sylvain Noivelle. Of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? Ah, It's tough because I had planned on reading On Writing soon, but I don't know. Underground Airlines or Sleeping Giants might grab my attention. Maybe maybe I'll go with Underground Airlines next. Well, regardless of what you pick up, I can't wait to hear what you think. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a great time. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Sean today, and I'd love to hear what you think Sean should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 172, that's 172, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Next week, I'm talking to reader Natalie Van Wanning about how a running injury turned her toward a voracious year of reading. Here's a sneak peek. The year that I read 90 books was actually the year that I had knee injury and then surgery. Books are a huge therapy, I'll say, um, for times of trouble for me. Now that you had your 100 book year, it sounds a little hyperbolic to say, is it everything you've dreamed of? But how did it feel and how might it change things going forward? You know, I ended up reading 118 books and 37 of them were audio. That's a lot of audiobooks. I was talking to someone about the whole audiobook and, oh, did I really, you know, meet my goal? And she said, you know, my daughter has dyslexia. Her reading is through audio. So, yes, you have read 37 books. And that really opened my mind to, wow, we need to stop being judges of uh, if that counts as a read. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there, at Ann Bogle, and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you're not on the list, you can fix that now by visiting whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support it, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or buy or borrow a copy of my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, for yourself or a friend. Thanks to the people who make the show happen, What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>